Good morning, everybody. So, how's everybody this morning? We are in the middle of a series of lessons called Meeting Jesus. And what we've been doing is we've been looking at different people that met Jesus. And what we've been trying to do is find out, well, what did he say to them? How did he treat them? What can we learn from that? And if you go through the Gospels, Jesus met a variety of people, didn't he? And I mean, some colorful characters. He met prostitutes. He met tax collectors, which were considered just about as bad. I think today they're still just about considered in the same realm there, aren't they? IRS. Uh, He met uh, lepers. He met drunkards. He met all kinds of people. Today what I'm going to try and show you is a guy that might have been the toughest of all of them. He was a good guy. See, sometimes the problem that we have when we think of ourselves as good is it's tough to learn too much. Whenever you know that you've messed up, sometimes it's a little bit easier. Some of us have found the easiest sometimes to look up when we're flat of our backs. And a lot of the times, the people that we looked at, that we've been looking at, they found themselves flat of their backs because of the things they'd done. But what about those guys that didn't mess up so bad? What about those guys that were basically decent dudes? What about them? How does Jesus treat them? The guy I'm going to show you this morning was a churchgoer. He was a guy that really loved his church. He wasn't pretending. He wasn't just punching his time card, coming in and out. He actually was into it. He wasn't acting like anything. He really meant it. Not only did he go to church all the time, what he knew as church, Judaism, worshiping at the temple, but he was a Bible student. I mean, he really dug into his Bible. Not only did he dig into it for himself, he taught other people what the Bible had to say. It's a guy named Nicodemus. Have you heard of this guy before? Yeah, it's a pretty familiar story to us, isn't it? He's the kind of guy that most of us, I think, would think of as a good guy. We'll find his story. We'll pick it up here in John chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. It says there, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, which is teacher, We know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. This is a very familiar story, right, Nicodemus? The problem I find with familiar stories is sometimes I read them too fast. And so I miss a lot of what's really going on because I think I already have heard this a few times. Anybody else with me on that? Okay, so as I looked at this passage and looked at this guy, I found it really helpful to ask two questions. The first one was, why is Nicodemus coming to see Jesus anyway? Now the verse doesn't tell us, does it? It just says he came to him at night. Well, we don't have a whole lot of information in the Bible about Nicodemus. We've only got him in about three different places. But there's a pretty good character sketch that I think we can come up with if we just look at some of those details. First of all, Nicodemus is a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin. Now, some of you guys are familiar with both of these titles, but for those that don't know much about it, 
they had a system of federal government that in some ways was similar to ours. They had a group of about 70 guys that they called a Sanhedrin. And it was different from ours in that there was no such thing as a separation of church and state. In fact, the church was the state. See, what had happened in Israel's history, at one point they were like the world power. But they kept betraying God, and God allowed them to be wiped out and carried off into exile. And from that point forward, even though they came back and they rebuilt the city and they rebuilt the temple, they were never a world power again. In fact, they were always dominated by the next group that came through, the Greeks and so forth. And at this time, it was the Romans. Well, the Romans had a habit of saying, okay, you've got a federal government, we'll let your federal government rule over this country like you're used to. Just remember who's really in charge, and we want a certain amount of tax out of you. So these Pharisees and Sadducees made up the Sanhedrin. Now, there's, again, there's a lot of differences, but just to try to give you some kind of a framework to understand how this was, you know how we have Republicans and Democrats today? Pharisees and Sadducees were sort of like Republicans and Democrats. That there was more Pharisees than there were Sadducees. Sadducees were sort of the elite big money group. Kind of like you might think of our Republican Party being like. The Pharisees were the heroes of the common man, of the working class. There was a lot more of them. Now what they did was, see they viewed themselves, even though God had brought them out of Babylon, out of exile, they thought of themselves as still being in exile. The reason they thought that they were still in exile is because God had inhabited that first temple that Solomon built. If you go back and you look at that and they dedicate the temple, the presence of God manifested. I don't know if it glowed or what happened, but everybody saw it and knew that God had moved in. Well, God left the temple whenever he allowed them to be overrun, allowed the temple to be destroyed. Whenever they came back and rebuilt the temple, the old folks that remembered the first one that had been destroyed, they cried. Because the former glory hadn't been restored. God never came back to that second temple. And so the Jews knew we are a nation in exile. That's why we have a foreign government in charge of us. So the religious leaders realized the reason that we're in this jam is because we didn't take seriously all of God's laws. So there's about 400 years between the last book of the Old Testament and the first one of the New Testament. And during this time, they have been getting really good at understanding all the rules and all the laws. And so a Pharisee was somebody that was almost like a religious lawyer. And I think uh, Nicodemus was a good guy because what he was thinking of is, I will learn all the laws, I'll be able to practice these myself, I'll show the rest of the nation how to do this, and then when we're good enough, guess what? God will bring his kingdom back. I think Nicodemus was really trying to help the kingdom of God be restored in Israel. And so now, what happens just before we read this story with Nicodemus meeting Jesus in John 3, is Jesus has just gone to the temple, which is the hub and the very focal point of their religion. Everything is based on the operation of the temple. That's where the sacrifices were. That's where everything was happening. That's where the priests were. Jesus went to the temple and kind of threw a fit. He tosses out the money changers. He drives out all the people that are making money, selling animals for sacrifice. Basically, he has come in and he said, you guys are doing it wrong. The way you're worshiping God stinks. Quit it. Now, if you're a Pharisee and you've built your entire life on this system of worship, thinking that your efforts are going to bring the kingdom of God back and get you out of exile and, and get you uh, acceptable back to God, and Jesus comes along and says this, I think you might have a problem with that, wouldn't you? 
But look what Nicodemus says. Nicodemus said, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. Because you couldn't do the signs that you're doing if you weren't from God. So now here's where, I think this is why Nicodemus is coming to Jesus. He seriously wants to worship God and see God accept back his nation. But Jesus, who's obviously from God, says the way you're worshiping is messed up. And I think Nicodemus is bothered by that. Now normally, why do I think that this Pharisee is a good guy? Well, normally the Pharisees are pictured pretty badly, aren't they? They're usually the bad guys. We have a saying here that's been around for a long time, that power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. I don't know who gets the credit for that quote. A lot of the Pharisees were bad, but not all of them. Some of them, notice that Nicodemus says, we know that you're from God. Who do you think the we was? I don't think he had a mouse in his pocket. In fact, I don't even think they had pockets in those days. I think that they just had some robes. I think he was sent there on behalf of some other Pharisees, maybe even other members of the Sanhedrin, because they were confused. And they wanted to know, what is Jesus really teaching? Are we... They were in the dark. They just didn't understand some things. So that's, I think, why Jesus was coming there. Second question that I, that I had to ask to get, some, get deeper into this text was, why does Jesus just seem to blurt out, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God? I mean, I think about it. Nicodemus didn't ask any questions. Right? If he did, it's not written down for us. So he comes to Jesus and says, yeah, we, we know that you've got to be from God because you're doing some pretty impressive signs. That's all he said. And Jesus comes back, almost like he's shooting back, blurting out. Well, unless one's born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. Why would Jesus respond to him that way? Well, I've got to guess. I mean, we're not told specifically, but I've got to guess I would throw out there for you. I think that Jesus knew Nicodemus had a problem, but not the one that he thought he had. I think that he was going right to the core of where Nicodemus' problems were. And I think that's what Jesus does every time, isn't it? Most of us realize we've got problems. When you meet Jesus, he may not deal with the problem you want him to deal with. Instead, he's going to go to where the real problem is. can't tell you how many times I sat down with someone who's, whose marriage is falling apart. And they want help with their marriage. And Jesus says, in a minute... Let's look at what the real problem is. Or they've got another problem with some other relationship. It's really going bad. And invariably, it seems like people want Jesus to change the other person. Right? We've been there, haven't we? I've been there. I've thought the same thing. I've made the same mistakes. But Jesus has a habit of going straight to the heart of the problem. And that tells me that the problem Nicodemus had was that he was really in the dark about some things. He wasn't in the dark because he came at night. He was in the dark because he didn't understand at least two very important things. The first one was he didn't understand what the kingdom of God is. He didn't understand what the kingdom of God is. How many of you guys understand what the kingdom of God is? I don't see one hand in the teen section. Hmm, not too confident about it? Okay, so here's the trick to learning how to get some good stuff out of the scripture. is trying to identify with the people that Jesus deals with. And if you can see things like I'm in his shoes some way, then what Jesus is saying to him might really help me, right? Well, Nicodemus didn't know much about the kingdom of God, obviously. The other thing he didn't understand was who's going to get into it. So the two questions, the two things that I think 
Nicodemus is in the dark about is he doesn't understand what the kingdom of God is and he doesn't understand who's going to be allowed to come into it. Now, for you to get some real good out of this, I think you need to see and ask yourself. Now, in the notes, I left you a place to scratch down some answers. And really what I was planning on doing was trapping you or tricking you. But what I was going to have you to do is, is write down the answer. What is the kingdom of God? And then write down your answer of who is it that gets to go in? And then compare how similar or dissimilar your thoughts or your answers to those questions are to Nicodemus's, and yet again to Jesus's. Because folks, if we're in the dark, being a good man isn't going to cut it. Being a good person wasn't the threshold that Jesus was looking for. So, what are some of the popular answers about what the kingdom of God is? A lot of Christians think that the kingdom of God is heaven. That's where God reigns. Kingdoms have kings. Kings rule in their realms. God lives in heaven. So the kingdom of God, therefore, must be heaven. Sort of makes sense, right? I started studying out the kingdom of God, I want to say, six or seven years ago. And I thought I knew what it was whenever I began the study. And it didn't take me very long to figure out I didn't know much, if anything. I knew that it's where God reigns, it's where he rules, but I didn't know anything more than that. And what I found out as I started discussing what the kingdom of God is with other people, I ran into a lot of people who thought just this, that the kingdom of God is heaven. And we'll get there one day. Maybe that's where that phrase, kingdom come, comes from. When we get, when we get to heaven, that's when everything's going to be okay. It'll be a reward for us who are faithful. Another popular idea amongst Christians is that the kingdom of God is the church. Anybody here kind of associated kingdom and church together? Most of my Christian life, I thought the two were synonymous. I don't think that's the case anymore. I think the church is in the kingdom, but I think the kingdom is actually a little bit bigger. One of the things that I find really consistent through both of the misunderstandings about the kingdom of God is that it relies on this idea of we suffer here and now, surrendering our will for Jesus' and then we're rewarded by going to heaven. How many of you guys think that is the ultimate goal of Christianity, to go to heaven? A few of you? I'm not certain that that's really what the Bible presents. I'm not certain at all. Heaven and hell are just where we go whenever we die. I think that there's something bigger. I think the kingdom of God is really huge in this. I'll talk more about that later if I've got your attention with that one. That might shock some of you guys. So what did Nicodemus think? How would he have answered those questions? Well, we can only assume that he would have thought and, and, and believed the same things that other Jews contemporary to him would have thought. So we can kind of fill in the sketch here. He would have probably thought that the kingdom of God would be an earthly kingdom like the one that King David ruled over. Whenever the nation of Israel was a superpower. And that the kingdom of God would come back someday and that God would give them another king. His presence would come back into the temple... And they would rule. And as Jews, they would be God's special people, meaning that they were favored above everybody else. See, in Judaism, they were kind of racist in a lot of ways. They looked at everybody who wasn't a Jew as inferior. Enemies of God deserving punishment. And deserving to be separated from all the bounty that came from living inside this physical kingdom here on earth. That would have been a little bit of what Nicodemus might have been thinking. What did Jesus say about his kingdom? Well, if you look at John 18:36, which is just a little bit later on in this, this same book, 
Jesus is on trial before Pilate and Pilate's trying to drill him about are you actually the king of the Jews and Jesus said that his kingdom was not of this world not of this realm his kingdom is active in this world but it's not from this world you get the difference it's from God not from this world which makes it a spiritual kingdom it is just as real as any other kingdom I mean this is one of the things that I didn't really capture until I studied this out is that the kingdom of God is literal and that it is just as real as the United States of America that our king is just as active just as alive right here right now as any president or any king on any earthly thing but there are some significant differences between the kingdom of God and any other kingdom we have different rules different ambitions for this kingdom and as a people we have different weapons that we use and our power source is completely different than other kingdoms I don't know of any one verse in the Bible where the kingdom of God is completely described adequately and sufficiently to where we can go ah that's the answer but there is one verse I would show you that gives me as much insight as any other and that's in the Lord's Prayer you guys familiar with that one it's where Jesus was teaching them, our Father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name in Matthew chapter 6 verse 10 Jesus says there your kingdom come your will be done on earth just like it is in heaven I think what Jesus is saying is the kingdom of heaven is where people on earth do God's will just like they do in heaven let that sink in for a second do you know of any group any nation where people actually live here and now by the rules that are obeyed in heaven what would that be like God, when he talks about, in Matthew 23, 23, Jesus is talking to some bad Pharisees. They're getting on to him. And he says, you know, you guys are real good about keeping a bunch of rules. You'll even give a tithe off of your spice rack. Very impressive. But you leave the weightier things of the law undone. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. The weightier things of the law were the morals. Not just the rules, all of our morality comes off the character of God. God reveals who he is through his morality. And whenever you want to sum him up, he's basically three things. He's just, which means he doesn't treat anybody in a way they don't deserve. He's merciful, which means he doesn't care that bad when you treat him in a way that he doesn't deserve. He doesn't want to just get even. He's kind of easy going. And faithfulness. God always tells the truth and he always does what he says he'll do. If his kingdom is like him, and I believe that it is, think about what this would like. How would you like to live in a place where nobody ever treated you in a way you didn't deserve to be treated? They were pretty relaxed and, and easygoing wherever you didn't treat them the way they deserved. They didn't hold grudges or try to punish you for that. And they told you the truth and would do what they said. I was talking recently with a couple of atheists. And I was sharing the gospel with them. And I was telling them, hey, the very same lines that I'm using with you right now. I said, what, what does that sound like to you? Unscripted, they, they looked at each other and said, well, that sounds like that would be heaven on earth. Yeah, these are to atheists. They're catching the central message of what the kingdom was. It's not that complicated. And Jesus is talking about that invading earth. See, I believe that the kingdom of God is heaven coming here. And for most of my existence, I was like Nicodemus. Most of my life as a Christian, I was sort of like Nicodemus in some ways. I was trying to be a good guy. And I was playing my cards trying to get to heaven. 
And what I found as I've studied the Bible more thoroughly is, it's not about me going to heaven or us going to heaven. It's about God bringing heaven here. If you really get understanding what I'm talking about with that, this has got some legs on it and some teeth in it. Because it's going to change everything about your religion. The potential for coming in out of the dark is really good whenever you get a hold of this one. So, the second question is, who gets to enter this kingdom of God? How would you answer that? Would it surprise you if I told you that Christians disagree a lot? And, and, and there's, not, you know, there's not the good Christians and the bad Christians, okay? <laughs> there are some people that, that really are much smarter, better students than me that would disagree with me on this very strongly. But I have to go with what I think is really the strongest. And I, I expect you would have to do the same thing. So what are some of the views that people have? Some Christians think that the kingdom of God is basically a, a, a right or an inheritance for people that are good. For good people. How many times have you had someone say, well, my aunt so-and-so was the salt of the earth, and no, she never went to church, but if she ain't in heaven, no one's going. Right? You've heard that kind of thing before. Some Christians think that it's about being good enough. I know some Christians who play it the other way, but usually about themselves. I have done so much sin, I am scared to death to die because I'll probably go to hell. I'm not sure that that's really what Jesus teaches. There are other Christians who think that it's about praying Jesus into your heart. Now, I, may, I realize I may offend some people here with this one. How many, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. How many of you people have been told that the way that you get into the kingdom of God is by asking Jesus to come into your heart? Pretty popular, right? Pretty common. The Bible never says that. Jesus never says that. I have absolute... No problem with understanding, or I believe that some people, that's where their journey with God begins. But I think that's maybe just a first step. And we're nowhere in Scripture are we told to pray that prayer. Or promised heaven, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, if we pray it. If there is more to becoming a Christian than just praying. If there's more into entering the kingdom of heaven than just asking Jesus into your heart. Wouldn't you be a little bit in the dark if you didn't understand what the difference was and what more was expected? And you might be a really good person. But if you're in the dark, you might have the same problem as Nicodemus. And there are other Christians I've found who believe that it's only those who are baptized either as babies or as adults who will enter the kingdom of God. Heard that one before? I had a a relative of mine talking about another relative who was facing death who hadn't been to church in 40 years who said but he was baptized he'll get to go to heaven won't he I know some people who don't really care much about God or church or his morality they're not really that interested in Jesus but they think that they got it covered because someone had them baptized when they were an infant these are popular teachings that we deal with today and maybe some of you guys have bought into that. Maybe that's where you are in your thinking right now. I'd just like to challenge you that maybe there's more there for you to look at. Nicodemus, you know how he would have answered that question? Who gets to go into the kingdom of God? Circumcision. That brings to mind a whole lot of ideas, you know. I won't go there. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's, it's in your flesh, right? You know? It's like a passport. 
or a badge. See, his idea, if he's like all the other Jews and Pharisees of the day, was that this is about our nation. You realize that he didn't think it had anything to do whether you were moral, immoral, loved God, or hated God. Whether you were good or evil, bad, whatever. It was whether you were a Jew. There are some people who have a Christian equivalent of that today that think it doesn't much matter how you live just so long as you've once said yes to Jesus. Then you're in. And you can live like whatever. You can live like the devil. But now God owes you heaven. I think I've stepped on every toe I know of that exists. So now that I'm done tap dancing on that. Uh, and I, I, nobody's rushing for the doors, so I think I'm safe. What did Jesus say about the kingdom of God and who gets to enter it? Well, he says there in verse 3 of this passage that it was only going to be those who were born again that would enter his kingdom. Born again. Heard that phrase? You know what? Nicodemus had heard it too. Jesus didn't invent that one on the spot for him. The Jews were very familiar with the idea of being born again, but the idea of it was starting over. Golfers call it taking a mulligan. If you got married, they'd say, well, you've been born again. Those of us that are married know what he meant. You are starting over with a new identity, right? If you took a big job, they'd say you're born again. They even proselyted Gentiles into Judaism and said, you've been born again. But their concept of it was different, apparently, than Jesus's. See, Nicodemus was a pretty sharp guy. He wouldn't have been respected enough to be put in that ruling Sanhedrin if he hadn't known something about the scriptures. And yet, wherever Jesus says to him, you've got to be born again, Nicodemus is like, what? What do you mean? His question is, is obviously he doesn't understand Jesus because he's talking about, can I, mom? I'm supposed to, what are you talking about? If he had understood Jesus to mean it's about starting over and trying harder, having a, a higher ethic and better rules, if he had understood Jesus to mean that, which is what most Jews thought being born again was about, he probably wouldn't have responded to Jesus this way. I think he understood what Jesus meant, which is it's not about starting over, it's about becoming something entirely different, something entirely new. Now, the Apostle Paul talks about this, but he uses a different phraseology. He called it being a new man or a new humanity. Now, if you're a fan of the New International Version, like I was for very many years, the NIV will let you down in this regard. Paul talks about the new man about three places. He really starts talking about it in Romans 5, the whole chapter. But if you want to see where he dials it in, he talks about it in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. Later on, in Ephesians 4, verse 24... And also over in Colossians 9 through 11, that's where he'll talk about the new man. And if you're reading some modern translations, it will render it as new self. What's the problem with that translation? Well, the Greek word for, that they translate self is anthropos. Anthropos always means, always has meant, man or mankind, humanity. I don't think self and humanity are interchangeable. When I got married... I had standing next to me my best man, not my best self. It would have been confusing for my wife if my best one was over there on that side. She would have probably wanted him a little closer. (laughs) Instead, she got stuck with me. So Paul's talking about a new kind of humanity. Jesus taught that you have to be born again. The kingdom of God is about a different way to be human. And this is good news. How many of you guys struggle with the fact that you still struggle with sin? 
and doubt your salvation. How can God love me? And you're thinking, I still fall for this. Yeah, but you're a different kind of animal now. Because you've been born again. That's what Jesus would say. He called it being born of the water and the Spirit. Look at this. It's just like two verses down in uh, 3, verse 5. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit. Now he's still talking about being born again. Unless one's born of the water and spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, this one has been a big source of debate. What in the world does Jesus mean by water and spirit? What's he talking about? And again, frankly, much smarter men than me disagree with me. So, I can only give you the best I've got. You'll have to make up your own mind on this. If this was a Bible class, I would tell you all the other views that are out there and the verses that support those views. Because it's Sunday morning and I have a time limit, I have a rather short chain, I'm just going to tell you what I think and see if it's persuasive enough for you. It seems to me that whenever God wants to make something new, he always seems to use water and the Spirit. Check it out. Genesis 1, verse 2. What was there in the beginning? Water and the Spirit. God has always used water and Spirit. Why? I don't know. I don't know of anybody that knows. I know he uses water and spirit. That's the end of my understanding of that. Let me. Sh- yeah, there it is. That's, that's the whole lesson right there. I can't argue with him. Look at Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27. Now this is Ezekiel prophesying for God. God's saying what he's going to do one day. It says there, I will sprinkle clean water on you. Here's the water. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. Sounds like dealing with sin, doesn't it? I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. And get, get this. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. So we got water and spirit here, don't we? I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. You're familiar with the idea of someone who's hard-hearted, right? If they're hard-hearted, they're just sort of set on doing what they want to do, and they're not really too much concerned about what anybody else thinks or feels. And God's people had become that way. Sometimes things are... are, We we still, I think, in the church have this problem, don't we? Sometimes we're we're just a little too hard-hearted. But yet God promises to give us a new heart, a heart of flesh, one that's tender. And he says, I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Now, if that's not a description of a new kind of humanity, I don't know what is. The difference between religion and Christianity is, religion always imposes a set of rules from the outside and tells you you've got to do this, that, and the other. I don't even know for sure that Christianity presents the highest moral ethics of all the religions out there. There might be some that have a a morally higher ethic to offer than Christianity. But the difference is, is Christianity changes you from the inside rather than trying to force you to comply from the outside. God said that he would change the way you look at everything. Anybody here go on a diet? We've all done that, right? Did you fail? How about quitting smoking? Well, that's a tough one, huh? Drinking? What I have found, I've lost about 60 pounds since January of this year. And I'm starting to get into shape other than round. So yes, I I feel better about that. Well, don't clap too quick, because I've known for 16 years that I needed to. (laughs) 
I didn't get to that weight in a day. <laughs> I, I sat back and, and I remember thinking, I really should do something different. I really should. This is getting more painful. Things are beginning to break down. I was not motivated to do it just because I should. I was motivated to do it whenever my thoughts about it changed and I wanted something different. Mostly I wanted to avoid surgeries. So I, I had some, some joints that were giving me trouble. And I knew they were going to tell me to lose weight and get in shape. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll save the money and go do that first. Then we'll see if we need the surgeries and that kind of thing. Well, my point is, is that God was saying back then to Jeremiah, I will change you. One day, I will change you. I will wash you with water. I'll put a new spirit in you, which will change your heart. And no one will have to force you to do what my word says. You'll want to do it. In the church, I don't always see that. I don't always see that in this congregation. Because I've been the person, when I've seen the person many times, whenever they're trying to help, I'll just put it in the first person, whenever I'm trying to help someone understand how to please God, and they're fighting me. And they think somehow I'm asking them to please me. And I'm taking candy from a baby. They want what they want. That doesn't sound much like what Ezekiel was prophesying. Now that could just be weakness or that could be rebellion. There's a difference between those two. But the point that I'm afraid of is that there are a lot of Christians that are too much in the dark still. Like Nicodemus. And they're too much like Nicodemus to really understand. And what, did, what are we told in the New Testament? People sometimes like the dark. I'm hoping that if you find sometime, somehow in, in something that I'm saying here this morning that you might be a little more in the dark than you're comfortable with, let me encourage you to check that out and to move out of the dark and into the light. It's better. I know it's scary, but it's better. John, same, same author, same gospel, very first chapter. It's interesting that John starts off and he says, in the beginning. You know which other book in the Bible starts off with, in the beginning? Genesis. You know what was happening in Genesis? Creation. Guess what's happening in John? Creation. New creation. Familiar with that? God's busy again, guys. He's creating again. He's in the middle of it. We're in the middle of it. And in John 1, John is lining it up for us. But look at what he says down here. He says in verses 12 through 13, he says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. The right to become children of God. Even to those who believe in his name, who were born, get this, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. There is a new birth that's involved in this kingdom gig. There is no way to get into the kingdom according to Jesus unless there is a new birth. And God calls it children. It's becoming a part of his family. You know, there's supposed to be a family resemblance in families. And when we're born of the Spirit, I believe that there is a family resemblance to Jesus himself, who came and showed us exactly what God is like. Check out Romans 6, 3-4. It says there, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? Baptism includes water, right? The word baptizo... In the Greek, is to dip, to die, to plunge. It means to be completely overwhelmed. It means to be submerged beneath something in water, right? 
All of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. Paul is starting a theology here where he's talking about, and you'll see this in all of his writings, Paul believed that whatever was true of the Messiah is also true of anybody that's in the Messiah. So if you're in, and that's why he uses this phrase, in Jesus so much, in him, in Christ. If you're in him, then whatever happened to him happens to you. And guess what he says? In baptism, you do what? You experience his death. His death was a death to sin. A death to the old humanity. This is chapter 6 of Romans. Go back and look at chapter 5. And Paul, he's building up his case that he makes in chapter 6 from what he says in chapter 5. And he's still talking about old man, new man. And he's saying that Jesus came and put to death the old man. The old humanity. If you're in Christ and you've been baptized, that's true of you too because you're in him. He goes on. He says... Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in a newness of life. Does that sound like born again? I think that baptism, and obviously, I'm not talking about, hey, let's all go jump in the water and we get our ticket to heaven. Right? Without faith, it's water. Without repentance, it's water. Without confessing, which is different than admitting. See, we use the word confess a little differently than they did in the Bible. When we talk about confessing, we're talking about admitting. It's like confess your sin. Okay, well, I got, I did this one, I did that one, I did the other one. I know those are all sin. So I confess. Confessing Jesus, we sometimes do that same way. Yep, we know Jesus is the Son of God. That's just admitting. Demons do that. Confessing has to do with being of the same mind, agreeing with. Guess what you do in baptism? You call on his name and you confess him as Lord. Lord means, it's the Greek word kurios. It means owner. Owner. We, we use landlord. That's about the only way we really understand Lord. Whenever you understand that Jesus is Lord, owner of heaven and earth, that's a huge deal. Because he requires all men everywhere to serve him. And I know right now one of the most popular brands of Christianity out there is God is here to serve you. Folks, that's not the light. That looks a lot more like the darkness than the light. And if you've bought into that, that God is just going to bless you because he loves you so much. So he wants to make life just this wonderful thing for you. And that you're the center of his plans. You've bought into a false gospel. Wouldn't be the first time in history that's ever happened. I would encourage you, if you've bit into that apple, to spit it out and come out of the dark. He's talking about something else. He's talking about being born again into a new life, into a new kind of humanity. In Acts 2.38, Peter said, Repent, each one of you, and be baptized, there's the water again, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, there's that being sprinkled and cleansed, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There's water and spirit again. There's new creation. I don't pretend to understand all that goes into this. Some pretty deep stuff. But it seems pretty obvious to me that if you're going to enter the kingdom of God, there has to be a repentance, a changing of the way you think, of allowing God to do the spiritual circumcision that Mike was bringing up in, in uh, the Lord's Supper and to give you a new heart, to save you from your sin, to wash that stuff away, and to allow you to be something completely different, brand new, a different kind of humanity, a new man, a new creation. That's who gets into the kingdom of God.
So, two more questions to ask. Why does Jesus compare people who are born of the Spirit, this born-again person we've been talking about, why does he compare them to the wind? He does this in verse 8. This is what he says. He says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it's going. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. Okay, what does he mean by that? I don't know. But, of course, I'm going to guess. <laughs> My guess is, is that it's similar to the way that you, can, you can't really see the wind, can you? You can see the effects of the wind, but you can't really see the wind. I think what Jesus might be saying here is, you can't see the Spirit of God in a Christian with human eyes. Boy, I wish that that were true, that we could. You know, you come up out of the baptistry, it'd be pretty clear. He's glowing. He's good. <laughs> Depending on the filter on our baptistry, you might glow, but it might have nothing to do with the Spirit of God. Right? Amen, Sarah. We we had to break the crust and get her in. It was bad. (laughs) But we knew that her commitment was good because that water was not not real clean. You can't see the Spirit of God in in a person, can you? But like the wind, you can see the effects of the Spirit of God in a Christian's life. And see, a lot of times we don't talk about this because it makes people uncomfortable. Because the reality is, is if you are born again, if you're not still in the dark, if you're born again, your life will look different. Because just like a strong wind, you can't ignore the effects of it. You know what the, the, word, the Greek word for spirit is? Pneuma. You know what that means? Wind. Interesting, huh? You see the effects of the Spirit in a Christian's life, or they're not a Christian. I know, there's that last toe. If you don't see a difference, if you're not a different kind of human, then you're not a Christian. Now, I'm not talking about us being perfect, because perfect is that we're never going to be that. We're going to struggle with sin because that's the nature of our flesh and the nature of living in a fallen world. But Christians should certainly sin less. And they should struggle with the sins that are still going on. I was talking with a good brother this morning and he's still doubting himself because he has some sins that he still keeps falling into again and again and again. And he hates it. And sometimes it makes him hate himself. Because he can't be good enough. But the thing that he forgets sometimes is the fact that he hates it says that he loves God. That something has changed. Something inside him has changed. And so he struggles to try and do better. Why? Because he loves God and because this is inconsistent with people who live in the kingdom of God. So what are the effects of being born of the Spirit? It's Galatians 5. He says, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are... Now he's talking about what it was like before you were born again. Now he says a lot about what it was like in the old humanity. In the old humanity, these things are common. This is how people are. That's what he's going to talk about. You may have had some of these apply to you, or not all of them, or all of them. But this is what it was like to be in the old humanity. He says, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, Enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of angers, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
These lifestyles, and we're not talking about tripping and falling down. We're talking about lifestyle decisions. If you, anything on that list, you're saying, you know what? I know I just want to do that. I'm not going to give that up. You're not born again. Do I have to say that one again? I'm not saying if you occasionally fall into these things. I'm saying if you're saying, I will do it again, and nobody's going to tell me I can't do it again, then you're not in the kingdom of God. You're in the dark. That's the old humanity. Look at the contrast. What's in the new humanity? He says in verse 22, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Think about that list. And I know I covered it pretty quickly there. But if you knew a group of people where that's what they looked like, that's how they acted, wouldn't you want to be in that group? Wouldn't that be heaven on earth? To have a community that this was how you would describe them? You know, they're very peaceful people. They're very patient. They're full of joy. They're very kind. They do good stuff all the time, just full of goodness. They always keep their word. They never lie. They tell you the truth and they'll do what they'll say. They're very gentle. They have a lot of self-control. Does that sound bad to anybody? That's fruit of the Spirit. Have you ever thought, why is it called fruit of the Spirit? I'm certain that there's lots of good answers. But I want to throw something out here for you to think about. Back in Numbers 13... We have an interesting story. And what's going on there is God has just busted the Israelites out of Egypt. Moses is leading them through the desert. They're getting close to the promised land. And Moses sends out ten spies. And he says, I want you to trip on over there. And if you can, you know, scout it out and give us a report of what's there. But if you can, try to bring back some of the fruit of the land. Now, why would Moses want to see fruit from this place? He wants to know what the land is like. He wants to know what's growing there. It will tell him something significant about the place that they're heading to. And they do. They come back with pomegranates and grapes. They got them carrying on poles. And everybody says, this is a place we want to go. Of course, if you know the rest of the story, some of the guys said the obstacles are too great. There's too much opposition. We'll never make it there. And two guys said, but it's already been promised to us. We should certainly go. Guess what fruit of the Spirit is for? Guess what fruit of the Spirit in your life is supposed to do? A lot of people think that fruit of the Spirit is to convince me that I'm saved. See, I can prove I'm saved. Why? Because i got some of these things on this list, and so I can feel safe. That is not what I think fruit of the Spirit is about. I think you should feel safe based on what Jesus said. Not your ability to jump higher and run faster. That looks like trying to keep rules to prove something rather than trusting our Lord. I think the reason that that God wants us to bear spiritual fruit is for the same reason Moses wanted to see fruit from the promised land. He wants the world around us to see what this kingdom is like, what it's about. When we call ourselves Christians and we say that we're members of the kingdom of God and we cuss and we lie and we hate on people, when we have some people we like and other people we don't and we don't care who thinks what, When we don't keep our word, we don't always tell the truth, we allow ourselves to have fights that go on for generations. When we act like the old human, people see that fruit too. 
And they say, that's just as bad as what I've been growing where I'm at. Why would I put religion on top of it? But when they see fruit of the Spirit, who doesn't want to live there? And all of a sudden, God gets a better reputation. And people start getting interested in what this kingdom thing is about. And the gospel actually sounds like good news. See, I think Israel, they made a big mistake because they didn't even understand what the kingdom was for. They thought that it was for God to bless them. How many of you guys think that the church is about blessing you? God always intended his people, Israel, to be a vessel that he could put his mercy into to pour out on the rest of the nations. Israel thought the mercy is for us. And they didn't give it out. Oh my gosh, is that ever happening in our churches? Folks, you're not here just for you. If you're a new Christian, if you're a new new human, a new man, if you're in the kingdom of God, how can it be about you? You're safe. You've been given an inheritance. You're in the kingdom of God. Not because you were good enough, but because you trusted the only one who could be. And anybody else that will trust him can be in there too. But why would anybody want to go to a place where everybody's just the same, just as bad, where change doesn't happen? How would you believe that that's a God with power? If you're born again, one of the first signs that you're going to see is you're going to see fruit of the Spirit. The second one that you're going to see is that you have a new job. You're an ambassador. Everybody understand what an ambassador is? An ambassador is an official representative of another country, of another kingdom. They have a nation of domicile. You know, you guys keep up with any of the UN stuff that's been going down this last week? They got ambassadors all over New York. But they don't all, they live in New York right now, but they're not from New York. They represent different kingdoms. And we formulate our opinions about different governments and different peoples largely based on the representatives that come from those countries. And we... See, nowhere in the Bible does it say that we have dual citizenship. I don't know if you noticed that or not. We have one loyalty. That's to our king and his kingdom. I don't mean that all Christians need to revoke their citizenship in the United States. I'm certainly not saying that. But this is just our nation of domicile. Our allegiance and our loyalty is first to God. First to his kingdom. And his agenda. Look what Paul says to the Corinthian crowd. 2 Corinthians 5 verses 17 through 20. says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. What's true of the Messiah is true of you. Jesus was resurrected from the dead and they recognized him, but he was different. And they had a hard time explaining it. He could kind of like walk through walls. And he kind of buzz in and out. <laughs> they couldn't quite understand it. He's a different kind of human. If you're in him... What's true of him is true of you. Maybe not exactly like him yet, because, how do I illustrate that? Anybody here have a mortgage? Okay, whose house do you live in then? The banks. But all the deeds have your name on it. It is yours, but not yet. There'll come a day when it will be fully and finally yours when you pay off the mortgage, right? Those of us that have been bought back by God... Those of us that have gone through this being born again, we're not fully and finally redeemed yet. But I don't have any insecurities about whose house I'm living in. I know that it's mine. But I don't have the the title in my hand. And in the same way, we shouldn't be insecure as Christians about our redemption and which kingdom we live in. 
Even if we don't look exactly like him yet, there will come a day when we do. When we are fully and finally redeemed. Paul goes on to say, the old has gone and the new is here. All this from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. See, not only did God reconcile us, and you know what reconciliation means, right? It implies that there was a togetherness, something happened and they were apart and it's been brought back together. God has always, he never gave up on his original design. He created a good earth and he created good creation and he, it got taken away because of sin, but he wanted it back and he found a way to do that. And he has redeemed us and brought us back. And now, if he's been able to reconcile with us, it says, Paul says that he's given us the ministry. We're to serve him in getting the message out that God wants to be reconciled. He's given it to us. What I'm saying to you, Christian, is it's not just your paid preachers. It's not just the volunteer servants in this church that take responsibility for getting the message out. You get the message out. You're the ambassador. You're the one who's been entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation. God wants them back. He wants to get them safe because they're headed for a cliff. He doesn't want anyone to go to hell. And guess who he's put in charge of trying to get the message out? You guys. Me. All of us. We have to bear spiritual fruit and we have to be ambassadors. He says... And he has committed us the message of reconciliation. Verse 20, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. Okay, I've got to wrap it up. I'm 55 minutes into this. <laughs> I, I, I don't have a watch, and there's not a big one in here. So I, I got a little timer on my, my laptop, so now I don't go over, hopefully. So I'm still within my boundaries. I've got 55 minutes and change here. So I, can, I need to wrap this up. If I've said something that you just go, wow, that's different, would you consider that you may be just a good person like Nicodemus, but you might still be in the dark about some things? Would you take the challenge to do whatever you need to do to move into the light and to get out of the darkness? There are people here who can help. Nobody is perfect. I don't have all the answers. But we can search the scriptures together and try to turn on the lights a little bit better. If you don't know where to start, we've got a prayer request card and a response card in the notes. And you can make that need known and we'll try to make sure that someone hooks up with you. If you're not sure you want to sit down and talk to somebody, there's a video set that I've got on our website. It's greateraltonchurch.com, all one word, greateraltonchurch.com. And you can look at it. It's right there on the homepage. It's called The Beginning Studies. Now, the downside of that is you have to look at my face and hear my voice for about 20 to 30 minutes at a time. But step by step, we just kind of take a chunk at a time and talk about these very things. So if, if I've confused you or convicted you with anything from this message today and you want to take it further and you don't necessarily want to sit and talk to somebody, at least you can look at those videos and begin the process there. I've got to tell you, talking with somebody would always be better than watching a video, but you've got to start somewhere, right? I want you to know that it didn't end here in John 3 for Nicodemus. As I told you at the beginning, there were two other places where Nicodemus is mentioned. We don't know how Nicodemus responded that night. We know that he had this conversation with Jesus, and Jesus probably jarred him as much as maybe I've jarred some of you guys here this morning. But the next time we see Nicodemus, we find him in John chapter 7, verse 51. And guess what? The Sanhedrin, the Congress, they're wanting to go after Jesus. 
And guess who it is that sticks up for Jesus? The guy that was hiding at night to meet with Jesus is now standing on the floor of their Congress defending him. Something changed. You see him one last time, and you'll see him in John 19, 39. It's whenever Jesus was dead. It was him and another Pharisee from the Sanhedrin named Joseph, a guy from Arimathea. And they show up to take his body down. They wash it, they clean it, they pack it in spices, and they give him one of their nice tombs, Joseph's tomb. They put Jesus' body in it. I think those guys must have gotten the message. I think they decided to walk out of the dark and into the light. If you're in the dark on some of this, don't stay there. I mean, there's no better time to start moving than right now. And I think we can all pray together, Lord, bring your kingdom here. Let's pray and we'll be done this morning. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much for your kingdom. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve to live in a place like like you described. We couldn't earn it. But we're grateful for it, Father. We've all been in the dark. We've all been stubborn. We've all been naive. And Father, we still mess up. But you provided a way to save even us. We're as much a part of the problem with this world as anybody who doesn't know you. And yet you've chosen to wash us clean, to change our legal status from those that are condemned to those that have been justified. You've brought us into a new kingdom and you chose us to be ambassadors for you, to live a life that bears fruit of the Spirit. Father, I pray that you'll change us that we'll take seriously this commission, that we'll stop thinking in terms of church and Sunday morning and start thinking in terms of king and kingdom and personal responsibility. Father, I pray that you'll help us to want to dig into your word, that you'll give us that new heart and that we will want to follow you and that we'll accept people that try to point us towards you. Father, we say all this because we want to see your kingdom come here. Jesus told us to pray for that. So that's what I'm praying on behalf of this congregation is that we'll see more of your kingdom to keep coming. For heaven to keep invading earth and changing, bringing light into a very dark place. Father, I pray that you'll bring your kingdom into our homes, into our marriages, into our workplaces, into our schools. Father, we want to see this invasion. We want to be a part of it. We love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.